traded so badly today. What did you do wrong today? I trade a lot of mean reversion. One of the things I do is three days up, three days down. If the market is up three days in a row, I want to start getting short. And if it's down three days in a row, I want to start getting long. The euro sold off during the past few days, and I started going long. The position will probably be okay, but it was down a number that was as much as I was willing to lose, so I covered most of it. Do you know where you will get out before you get in? It's based on the P&L. If I'm down more than 2% month to date on any day, I will clear out everything. I wasn't near that point today, but the daily P&L was down more than I wanted to lose, so I liquidated. How much was that? Ten million. In percentage terms. A little less than one percent. I know that doesn't sound like much compared to most hedge funds, but I am a grinder. But what did you actually do wrong today? The stuff that I do just didn't work today. But that's not doing something wrong. There's a big difference between losing on your trades and doing something wrong. What I did wrong was this. I had a number in my mind for the year where I wanted to be. I wanted to get to about 14% gross for the year, which would get me above 10% net. I was close to there at the start of the month, November. I kept pushing and pushing, and I just couldn't make any headway. Was the mistake then pushing harder than justified by the trading opportunities? Yes. You run your risk control much tighter than most hedge fund managers. Where does that extreme risk averseness come from? I guess it comes from losing so many times early in my career when I didn't have any controls. I just don't want to lose again. How do you go from trading the XMI to trading other markets? The volume in the XMI was drying up, so I told spear leads that I wanted to trade other markets and they let me go ahead. That was when I began doing what I am doing today. Your trading style is very short-term. Do you have any longer-term market views? I'm as opinionated as anyone else. I have a broad global macro view, but I express it in a day or a few days in duration. Does it affect your trades? I don't let it affect my trades. I have investors visit, and when they ask me my opinion on the market, I will tell them. I may tell them that I think the broad market looks negative, and then the next month the market is up 4%. They will call me and ask, how could you be up last month when you were bearish and the market rallied? And the answer is that I let the market dictate to me how I should be trading, not my macro views of what I think the market will do. You never let your macro views influence your trading? Infrequently. In October 2008, I did something I normally don't do. I let a market assumption that I thought was right but ultimately proved to be wrong influence my trading. At the time, with the U.S. in a financial meltdown, I thought that Japan would dramatically outperform the U.S. because it had already had its banking crisis. My mistake was that every hedge fund manager in the world was long Japan, Hong Kong, and China, and those markets went down more than the U.S. because they had to liquidate their positions. That trade cost me a lot. Have the markets changed since your early days of trading? The growing influence of high-frequency trading has changed the behavior of the market and has made it more difficult for someone like me, who is a pure tape reader looking for clues in the market action. 
I am trying to adapt, as I always do, to changes in the market. On the other hand, the advent of electronic trading, which made high-frequency trading possible, has also been great for me. Why is that? Because now I don't have to talk to anyone. As you can see being up here, the phones don't ring. I can buy and sell anonymously. Before, when my orders were placed through the pit, the brokers would steal from me and I still made money. You probably have some anecdotes of times you got ripped off. Benedict laughs long and hard. He calls a broker on the speakerphone with whom he has dealt with since the pre-electronic trading days. They reminisce about some of the rip-offs Benedict experienced when orders were filled exclusively in the pits. The most egregious of these was Benedict getting a fill on a buy order at the low of the day, and then, later in the day, being told he no longer had a fill because the pit committee had invalidated the low of the day. For my benefit, Benedict next asked his broker friend to describe his demeanor in some of these situations. What was I like on the phone ten years ago? Broker on speakerphone in a tone exaggerated to express obvious sarcasm. You were wonderful. You were always kind to me. No, give me a straight answer. Broker. We considered making a tape called Benny's Greatest Fits. Benny being Larry Benedict's nickname. I have someone here who's interviewing me, and I'm trying to explain the difference between executing orders now versus what it was like when orders went to the floor. Broker. You can't even compare the two. I was explaining that I made money back at that time despite the disadvantage. Broker. It was the greatest disadvantage. Benedict thanks his friend and hangs up. The inherent disadvantage was that my order went into the pit, and they would yell, 86 for 400. You didn't have to be that smart to know that you could bid 86 and a fourth because there were 400 bid at 86. It was a huge disadvantage. Now no one knows anything because the trade is on the computer. What is the last time you lost your temper, and who were you angry with? About four days ago, I was angry at myself. I ripped out the phone and threw it against the wall. I am the worst sore loser you ever met. I am brutal on myself. I can make money nine days out of ten and still be so angry about losing on the tenth day. What happened four days ago? I was getting hurt on a trade and released some aggression. How often do you lose your temper? Much less than I used to because the playing field has become level. Originally, my anger stemmed from my not being able to handle being ripped off and lied to. Before electronic trading, it used to be almost every day and sometimes even multiple times a day. When I was working for Spear Leads, people could hear me on the other floor. That's how loud I was. Who were you yelling at? The brokers. An assistant brings in lunch, and Benedict addresses the question to him. Do I have a bad temper? Assistant speaking. The evidence is over there. He points to a broken phone on the floor. We have stacks of broken phones. Do you buy them in gross? Benedict speaking. At Spear Leeds, they actually charged my account for broken phones. They subtracted it from my P&L. <laughs> I've gotten a lot better over the years, but I used to be very bad. Benedict calls another friend on the speakerphone. Do I have a bad temper? There is a 20-second laugh before the voice on the speakerphone replies. You are a great guy, but you definitely have a dark side. Benedict, how dark?
friend. We don't want to go there. Put it this way, I wouldn't want to be on the other side of your wrath. Many phones have not survived you. I understand you worked for Marty Schwartz. How did that come about? I was at Spear Leeds at the time. I was trading the S&P 500 and getting a reputation of doing fairly well. Marty Schwartz was in the process of moving from New York to Florida and solicited me to come work for him. I knew of Marty from your book Market Wizards and thought it would be a privilege to work for him. I went to my boss, Peter Kellogg, and told him that I had an offer to work for Marty Schwartz in Florida. Peter knew Marty and told me, You can try it out, but no one can last very long with Marty. I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to keep you on the payroll. Schwartz had a reputation for holding on to employees only briefly, whether because he fired them or they quit. Benedict, who worked for Schwartz for several months, may have been one of his longest-term hires. Ironically, I visited Schwartz, the first time I had seen him since our original interview, on the same trip on which I interviewed Benedict. When I mentioned Benedict, he literally shuddered. His comments regarding Benedict, which I will not repeat here, were uniformly negative. Benedict's portrayal of Schwartz was equally unflattering, although he did credit Schwartz with paying for his relocation and acknowledged his phenomenal skill as a trader. What did you learn from Schwartz? Don't average losing trades. Be smaller than you need to be. Take profits. What happened after your brief stint of working for Schwartz? I went back to Spear Leeds. Peter Kellogg, who had warned me that I wouldn't last with Schwartz, liked me and gave me the opportunity to set up a Spear Leeds office in South Florida with another partner. We set up an operation with multiple managers trading different market groups. I directly traded a global macro portfolio and also oversaw the other traders. Why did you leave Spear Leeds? In 2000, Spear Leeds was bought out by Goldman Sachs. Goldman didn't want an operation in Florida and asked me to come back to New York. I loved it down here and had no desire to go back to a suit-and-tie world. Stephen Schoenfeld of Schoenfeld Securities offered me an opportunity to run a managed account for him. That is when I set up Banyan. What was your experience during 9-11? 9-11 was a major learning experience for me. That morning I got a call from the broker covering me at Goldman Sachs. He said, There is a plane sticking out of the World Trade Center. I didn't know what was going on, but I figured it can't be good. My immediate response was to start selling futures. Was the market selling off at the time? Not at that point. I don't know if you remember, but the market was very strong going into 9-11. The crash hadn't hit the news yet. Then when the initial story came across the tape, it said that a small plane had hit the World Trade Center. The market actually went up. At the time, I had no idea what was really going on, but I thought it was ridiculous that the market was rallying, so I sold more. The market went up after the news first came out? Yes, go look at the chart. All of a sudden, the second plane hit the World Trade Center. The stock market hadn't opened yet, but the futures were trading. The market started dropping hard. I had the broker on the phone, and I told him, I don't know what's going on, but I'm leaving and going to pick up my kids at school. Just sell me out of everything. Why were you leaving? I just wanted to get my kids. They were showing the planes hitting in New York and Washington. But you were in Florida. What were they going to do, take out Palm Beach? I agree, but what was going on was crazy, and I just wanted to be with my family. 
Why did you liquidate your position before you left? I didn't want to capitalize on people's misfortune. I felt weird having that short position. I still made a large profit on the day trade, but I left most of the money on the table relative to where the market traded when it reopened the following week. When the market reopened, I decided to be Mr. Patriotic. At the same time everyone else was selling, I was buying stocks and futures. Very quickly, I lost all the profit I had made on the 9-11 trades and then some. You said that 9-11 was a major learning experience. In what way? I learned that you can't be emotional in this business. It's a business and nothing else. Going long when the market reopened was a purely emotional trade. Do you think that your going long when the market reopened was influenced by guilt at having made money on 9-11 by being short? Maybe. I never thought about it that way. I don't want to make excuses. Actually, you were cheering for one side, which is a lethal mistake for a trader. As you know, you have to be neutral in this game. Your story reminds me of Ed Sakota's provocative observation in the first Market Wizards book. Everybody gets what they want out of the market. Putting it into context of your experience on 9-11, you wanted to not feel guilty about having made money being short on 9-11, and by losing it all by being long when the market reopened, that's exactly what you got. You have seen a lot of traders both on the floor and off the floor. What are some common mistakes traders make? One big mistake is averaging losing trades. Trading is very hard, but it's also easy if you maintain discipline. People blow up because they lose their discipline. I originally met with Benedict in late 2010. I called him in July 2011 for a mid-year update. I've had a very bad year. We're down almost 3% and I'm trading smaller. Well, that's consistent with your risk discipline. I guess it's probably a good thing that you are trading smaller, or else you would have been down more. Absolutely. But one of the hard things about managing client money is that although I am very patient, the clients aren't very patient. One of my problems is that I want to make everyone happy. I'll give you some advice. You always have to manage money for yourself, not your clients. Once you start adjusting your trading to fit what your investors want, you're in trouble. I've talked to a lot of managers who made that mistake. After rereading the chapter, I felt that a key question had still not been satisfactorily answered. I called Benedict again in October 2011 with some follow-up questions. One key question I still have is, what changed when you went from being a losing trader to a consistently winning one? Where was your edge coming from? I learned to pay attention to how markets moved relative to each other. I became a correlation trader, the same thing I still do today. Can you provide some examples to illustrate how you trade markets against each other? My problem is that I could never teach my kids or friends what I do because it is so innate. I am constantly trading. It's not like there is one type of trade or even a few specific trades. I trade off of correlations, but I don't constantly trade the same way. I am sensitive to when the correlations are working and when they are not working. So a trade might work in one time frame, but not in another, and I am constantly adapting. As soon as I put on a position, I immediately start looking for a trade that would be the best offsetting hedge. Say I go long the S&P. I would be looking at my 10 screens for the best hedge. It might be selling out another index, or selling a deep in the money call, 
or selling an out-of-the-money call, or buying bonds when it is inversely correlated, or taking an inversely correlated position in the euro, and sometimes I will not put on any offsetting trade, but just use a stop on the position. But how do you decide which is the best hedge? By watching the market movements. For example, right now the S&P is trading at 1227, and the bonds are coming off a bit, which tells me that the S&P should probably hold here and start to rally. If I buy it and it doesn't rally, I would look to buy bonds against it. Why would that be better than just getting out of the S&P? This is where the correlation comes into play. The last time the S&P was trading at 1227, the bonds were 25 bid, and now they are 20 bid. Usually when the bonds go down, the S&P goes up. So the S&P should hold here, and if it doesn't, then the bonds should rally. I think I could buy the S&P here and buy the bonds and make money. Do you have a current directional bias in the S&P? I'm very bearish. Why? Because I don't think the European situation is going to end well, reference to the debt crisis of the weaker European countries. And they are bidding up the market expecting some grand solution that is probably not going to happen. But again, that is not what I do. I don't make major directional bets. I am a very opinionated guy. But for the first five years of the business, my opinion did nothing but lose me money. So I have to leave my opinions at the door. I think the market is going to eventually crash, but I have to stay in business and I can't make that bet. Did you have a position coming into the day? I was modestly net long. Why net long if you're bearish? I came in long because today was option expiration day, and 85% of the time they mark up the market on the morning of option expiration day. It has been going on for 25 years. Can we go back to the S&P and bond example? Okay, right now the bonds are still at 20 bid and the S&P is bid 75 cents higher. That move is equal to about 332 in the bonds, given that my bond position is about one-third the size of my S&P position. I could take profits on the S&P, put a stop in three ticks lower on the bonds, and if I'm not stopped out, take profits three ticks higher. The worst I would do is approximately break even, and if the bonds moved up three ticks, I'll make money on both sides. It's that simple. I do a lot of these trades every day. Sometimes my positions are big, sometimes they are small. Whether they are big or small depends primarily on how I am doing for the month and what our P&L is for the year to date. Since you don't trade on your longer-term directional views, how do you decide whether you want to be long or short the S&P? I try to look at anything the market thinks is important at the moment. Right now I'm looking at financial stocks in the U.S. and Europe as well as European markets in general because those are the key factors that are driving the current market. I'm sure a year from now I will be looking at completely different things. A year ago, everything was China. Now China is irrelevant, so that clue doesn't work anymore. Why do you think you have been successful whereas so many other traders fail? Since I started in the business, I have seen a number of traders who ended up committing suicide or being homeless. The one trait they all shared was that they had a gambler's mentality. When they were losing, they were always looking for that one trade that would make it all back. I learned early on that you can't do that. This is a business where you have to work. That is what I do. Every day I make hundreds of transactions. I grind out the returns. 
If you look at my daily returns, you will see there are very few big up days. The essence of Benedict's approach is that he looks at markets in context of the price action in other markets rather than in isolation. Markets are correlated, but these correlations come and go and can change radically over time. There are times when the S&P and T-bonds will move in the same direction and times when they will move in opposite directions. There are times when the S&P 500 will follow crude oil prices and times when the stock market ignores crude oil prices. Benedict is intently watching these intermarket relationships, not merely day by day, but minute by minute. At any given time, the price action in a market may be highly influenced, directly or inversely, by the price action of another market or several other markets. Knowing the prevailing correlations is only the start. There is no rule book as to what trades to do when a correlated market has a price move. Sometimes the trade will be to anticipate a lagged response. Sometimes the failure for a market to respond as expected may signal inherent market strength or weakness. Frequently, the implied trade may be to trade one correlated market versus another. For example, if two markets are positively correlated, Benedict may short the market that seems overextended, using a long in the correlated market as a hedge. The timing of such paired long and short positions will not necessarily be simultaneous, either on entry or exit, and will depend upon the prevailing price levels of each market relative to its expected range. In short, to say that Benedict uses market correlations as a key input is only the beginning. The selection and implementation of actual trades will be highly variable, depending upon multiple considerations and past experience. The process is entirely discretionary, rather than formulaic. The relevant lesson for traders is that the price action of other markets can contain useful information. Benedict's track record stands as a testament to this proposition. How this information can be used, however, must be discovered and developed by each individual trader based on personal observation and trading style. The message for traders is to be cognizant of how markets move relative to each other and to determine whether this source of observation can lead to useful trading ideas. Benedict serves as a model for extreme risk management. There are two key aspects of Benedict's risk management approach. First, he limits portfolio risk to a small fixed amount, 2.0 to 2.5%, before he responds with actions to mitigate further losses. Second, when this small drawdown threshold is approached, he reduces his position size and continues to trade smaller until he begins to be profitable again. A 2.5% portfolio risk level may be overly restrictive for many traders, but the key concept of setting a predefined loss point at which risk exposure is significantly reduced has widespread applicability. Also, reducing exposure when trading is not going well, an inherent component in Benedict's risk management approach, is generally a wise action for discretionary traders. For systematic traders, however, reducing exposure after losses may lead to poor timing of position sizing. The type of rigorous risk control practiced by Benedict may be as difficult for most traders to follow as the Ornish diet is for those trying to lose weight, but it can certainly be highly effective in avoiding significant losses. Mark Rosano, who was given a small portfolio to manage while he was an intern at Banyan Capital, recalls Benedict's obsession with risk management, saying, the biggest principle Larry pushes is that you are not a trader, you are a risk manager. He recounts Benedict's advice on risk control. 
Never stay in a losing trade because you think it will come back. Minimize the loss. Accept the loss and walk away from it. The worst thing any trader can do is freeze. You need to know how you will respond in any situation. How are you going to not lose money while making money? How are you going to get out of your losers? How are you going to keep your winners from turning into losers? Trade should be motivated by opportunity. Traders should caution against trading out of a desire to make money. In late 2010, Benedict pushed to reach his target for a minimum annual return. By doing marginal trades he would not otherwise have taken, he only succeeded in falling further short of his target. Chapter 4 Scott Ramsey Low-Risk Futures Trader I don't think I have ever been to a more unusual location for a hedge fund office. Although the manager I had visited years ago located above a urology office in Brooklyn, New York, is probably a close second. To begin, Ramsey manages his fund from that hotbed of hedge fund activity, St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. If I had been driven to Ramsey's office by a taxi, I would have sworn the driver had made a mistake or that I had incorrectly copied the address. But I had been picked up at my hotel by one of Ramsey's employees, so clearly I was in the right place. I stepped out of the car and gazed around the small shopping center. No building even remotely suggested the presence of office space. Ramsey's assistant led me into Gallows Bay Hardware and up the stairs. This was the location of Ramsey's trading firm, Denali Asset Management, an incongruous name for a firm located on a Caribbean island. The location of his office is not the only unorthodox thing about Scott Ramsey. He dropped out of college with a near-perfect GPA and only nine credits short of a degree to pursue a career in futures trading. Although it is a decision that seems bafflingly irrational to me, give credit to Ramsey for knowing exactly what he wanted to do. As he says, it turned out okay. Ramsey trades the highly liquid futures in foreign exchange, FX, markets. Although the majority of commodity trading advisors, CTAs, use a systematic approach, Ramsey is strictly a discretionary trader. He also differs from most CTAs by incorporating fundamentals into his decision-making process. Ramsey begins by establishing a broad fundamental macro view that determines his directional bias in each market. Once this bias is established, he will seek to go short the weakest market in a sector if he is bearish or long the strongest market if he is bullish, using technical analysis to time trade entry and position adjustments. Ramsey will score his best returns when he gets the fundamentals right, but even when he is wrong, his rigorous risk control keeps losses relatively small. Ramsey's 11-year track record is better than that of many of the largest and best-known futures managers. He has never had a down year and has been able to combine a solid 17.2% average annual compounded net return, 25.7% gross, with relatively low volatility and moderate drawdowns. Return alone is a highly inadequate metric for a futures manager because it is so dependent on the exposure level chosen by the manager. Futures managers always use only a fraction of assets under management to meet margin requirements. Therefore, any futures manager can double returns by simply doubling exposure without any need for borrowing. High return could just as easily represent excessive risk-taking rather than manager skill. Consequently, in evaluating futures managers, the only meaningful metric is return-slash-risk. 
Ramsey achieved his returns with well below average risk statistics. The annualized standard deviation has been 11.7%, less than two-thirds of the net return level. The maximum drawdown has been less than 11%. Ramsey's gain-to-pain ratio is a very high 2.2. Ramsey is 53, but looks a decade younger. Clearly, if trading provides any stress, it certainly doesn't show. Ramsey was quite relaxed during our interview, as perhaps fitting for a manager domiciled on St. Croix. After the interview, we picked up my wife, Joanne, at the hotel, and Ramsey took us out to dinner at an incredibly good local restaurant, Bacchus, check it out if you were ever in Christianstead, which served the best sashimi dish I'd ever had, presented on a block of salt, and had an extraordinary collection of Belgian beers. When did you first become aware of markets? I was a mechanical engineering student at the University of Missouri. My father had always pushed me to take some business classes. So in my junior year, as an elective, I took an economics course. It changed my life. In engineering, there is always a right answer. All of a sudden, I am faced with economics where there are all these shades of gray. I was fascinated by it. Our economics professor suggested that we subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, which I did. Every day I would see these ads for precious metals and energy. This was in the late 1970s when inflation was in double digits. At the time, my money was in a savings account earning the minimum interest rate, which was much less than the rate of inflation. I thought I should check into buying metals. So I responded to one of the ads in the Wall Street Journal and bought gold, silver, and copper. Were these futures you bought? No, it was over-the-counter metals. I opened an account with First Commodity Corp. of Boston, FCCB, which charged an exorbitant commission rate. I'm not proud of that decision, but I guess it shows I was a sucker for their marketing. I believe the CFTC shut them down for improper disclosures. Why didn't you buy futures instead? I was a novice. I didn't know about futures. This was my entree into buying metals. How did you know what the prices were since you weren't going through an organized market? The prices were pegged off the futures market. So you bought and sold at a futures-linked price. But they charged you an exorbitant commission. I don't get it. The way it worked was that FCCB charged you a flat fee of $1,200 per market, and then you could buy and sell as much as you wanted in that market for six months. But they would try to get you to trade into another market so they could charge you another $1,200. If you were trading silver, they would try to talk you into doing a trade in copper. But since the prices were pegged to futures, didn't you think of just going directly to futures? That's what I eventually ended up doing. By the time I was a senior, I had a quote screen in my apartment. But at this point, I had already paid the flat fee for trading for six months. I was trading the markets pretty actively. At one point, I was up over $10,000, which was an incredible amount to me. At the time, you could have bought two cars for that amount of money. I couldn't believe how easy it was to make money. You just bought something, and it went up. This was in 1979 when commodities were going ballistic. On what basis were you making your trading decisions? I really had no idea what I was doing. I would buy something, and when it went up, I would sell it. I was making money because I was buying in a rising market. I can actually say that I bought silver at $50, which is right near the all-time high. Then Volcker raised interest rates sharply to fight inflation and on top of that, the exchange raised silver margins. Shortly afterwards, silver prices collapsed. The market went to a string of limit-down days, 
I couldn't do anything. I felt helpless, stupid, and powerless. Silver fell all the way down to $26 before it started trading. It was a gut-wrenching experience. Did you get out as soon as it started trading? The first day it traded, I got out. I lost all the money I'd made plus some of the money I started with. Did you stop trading after the big silver loss? It took some time to reassess the situation. I read a lot of books on speculation. I had enough money left over to start trading futures. I hit it off well with a broker and opened an account with him. Much to my surprise, as soon as I opened the account, I was assigned to another broker that actually traded the account. The broker I liked was just a marketing guy. Anyway, the next thing I knew, I was long sugar, corn spreads, and other trades. He was a Turnham and Burnham broker. That account didn't last long. Then I opened an account at the local Heinhold Community Branch in Columbia, Missouri. I think I only had a few thousand left. This time around, I was doing all the trading myself. A couple of friends gave me some money, and I leased a quote terminal for my apartment. I spent many days watching every tick in certain markets and doing point and figures charts, in addition to my daily charts, instead of attending class. The results weren't so good. I made every rookie mistake in the books. Rather than taking the easy route and trading with the trend, I was trying to pick tops and bottoms, and I sat with losers and took small profits. Losing money is what got me hooked. I had heard that allegedly 90% of the traders in the future markets lost money, but I was determined to be in the 10%. I was an excellent student, easily in the top 10%, and I often set the curve on exams. Whenever I took a test, my attitude was that someone had to make the highest grade on the curve and that it might as well be me. And it often was. So being in the 90% that lost money in trading was not acceptable. I didn't graduate college because I became so engrossed in futures trading that I had no interest in engineering anymore. At what point did you drop out? In my senior year, I had nine credits left to finish. I find that hard to understand. It seems like it would have been such a trivial matter to finish college. I'm not saying I did the right thing, although in retrospect, it turned out okay. Did you ever regret coming so close to graduating college and not finishing? I never look back, although sometimes it can be embarrassing. Whenever prospective investors conduct their due diligence and ask where I graduated, I have to explain that I went to college for four years and had a high 3.9 GPA but didn't graduate. What was your plan? My plan was to go to Chicago, start in the pits, and learn how this business worked from the bottom up. I initially got a job as a phone clerk in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. After a few months, it became apparent that there was no future on the floor unless you were in the pits. I got a job as a commodity broker. Was sales something that you wanted to do? No, it certainly wasn't my passion. I hated cold calling. What I wanted to do was trade. The broker job was a means to an end. It kept me involved in the markets. I remember my first month's check was $43. To this day, I wish I had framed that check, but at the time, I really needed the $43. Were you giving your clients recommendations? Yes, it was all based on technicals. At the time, I knew nothing about fundamentals. What kind of technical analysis? It was just the basic stuff, chart patterns and moving averages. The first book I had read on trading futures was John Murphy's book on technical analysis. How did your clients do? They didn't make much money, but they didn't lose either. I was able to keep them alive. Well, that's actually better than most brokers, especially at the high commission levels of those days. 
How did you get them out of trades when you were wrong? I used stops. Did you always have stops in place? I always had stops. How did you learn to do that? One of the first books I read emphasized the importance of cutting your losses and letting your profits run. Did any of your prior experience reinforce this basic concept? During my senior year when I was trading futures from my apartment, I went long T-bills. The market was under steady pressure because Volcker was raising interest rates. At the time, I wasn't using stops. Every day the position would go against me, but it would be by only about three ticks. I thought it was no big deal. Three ticks is only $75 a contract. The next day the market would be down another two or three ticks. It was a small bit of pain, but not enough to get me out. After a few weeks, what should have been a 10-tick loss ended up being a 50-tick loss, and suddenly it was real money. I realized there was no reason for letting what should have been a small loss turn into a big loss. I learned to trade first with my own money, which didn't work out that well, and then by advising clients as a commodity broker and doing okay. Then in 1982, I leased a seat on the IMM and went down to trade from the floor. You gave up sales? No, I teamed up with the broker in the office who had helped me get the job as a broker with the firm. We pooled our clients. I wanted to trade from the floor, and he stayed in the office. How was your being on the floor going to be beneficial? I thought that having information about who was doing what would be very helpful. But in the office, you had the screens, which you didn't have on the floor. Wouldn't giving up the screens have been a disadvantage? Good question. It turned out that it was. It was like putting blinders on. I learned to trade on a Quotron where I could see prices changing in all the markets. When I was in the pit, all I could see what was going on in that one market. I couldn't feel what the other external influences were on that market. I had become used to seeing all the markets trade and observing the relationships between their price movements. In fact, the relationship between price movements in different markets is a core part of my current trading strategy. I also very quickly learned that standing on my feet all day screaming wasn't the way I wanted to make a living. Did having the who is doing what information provide any compensating benefits? When a guy comes in and sells a 100 lot, you don't know what it means. But you thought that it might be helpful before you went down to the floor. I thought that the information you would get in the pit would be the holy grail. I just didn't think it through. The reality is that you get almost no useful information. So being on the floor turned out to be a disadvantage rather than an advantage. It was a big disadvantage. How long was it before you realized you made a mistake? I stayed on the floor for six months. I wanted to give it the old college try. You felt more comfortable upstairs? I felt more comfortable being able to see more market. By more markets, do you mean charts or just the prices? At that time, the screens just gave you quotes, not charts. I received a printed chart book each week and updated the charts every day. I think that was a great process. It made me pay attention to every market every day. I did that for over 10 years. Even when we got CQG screens, which had graphics, I still continued to update my printed charts manually for a long time. It was a daily routine of looking at each chart and thinking about what the patterns were telling you. I would even turn the charts upside down to see whether the pattern looked different to me. Over time, it helped me develop a sense of pattern recognition. Were you trading your own account when you were a broker? I had been trading my own account all along. How did you do? I did fine. 
I made money virtually every year, but I didn't make a lot of money. One thing I did wrong was that I thought only technical factors were important and that fundamentals didn't matter. The other thing I did wrong was that every time I made money, I would pull it out. So instead of increasing my size over time, I stayed a one and two lot trader. I never really tried pushing myself. The evolution of a trader is when you start letting your money work for you and increasing your size. What did you learn as a broker that allowed you to go from a string of early losses to making money almost every year? Being a broker provided an excellent vantage point. By observing retail clients, I learned a lot about what not to do, like taking small profits and letting losses run, a lesson that I had also learned from my trading days in college. I learned about the psychology of the markets and how certain traders were surprisingly accurate at picking tops and bottoms the wrong way, based on emotional decisions and market activity rather than technical or fundamental analysis. I learned the value of the classic buy-the-rumor-sell-the-facts kind of trading because it puts you on the opposite side of retail buying. I also noted how the most obvious technical patterns were often the ones that didn't work. I still look for those traits today. The more obvious they are from a chart standpoint, and the more the opposite position makes sense from a fundamental standpoint, the more interested I am if the pattern fails. So while I try to keep emotions out of my trading, which is the real challenge, I try to imagine how the guy who took the textbook trade and is losing money feels. Where will he finally capitulate? Is this the start of a big move the other way? When did you go from being a broker to managing money? The first step came in 1993 when one of my clients, who was a professional trader, asked me to manage $100,000 for him. I knew what it was like to trade my own money, but I didn't know what it was like to have power of attorney over someone else's money. I told him, we're friends, and if I lose you money, I don't want it to affect our relationship. He said, Scott, I give money to other people to manage. It's what I do. I think you have good ideas in the market. I want you to trade this account for me. I had decided that I would manage his money and my money for one year, and at the end of the year, if it worked out, I would register as a CTA and try to get other accounts. And did you? Yes, I started the CTA one year later. How did you do? I did okay, but not great. What was killing me in the process was that the brokerage firms who directed businesses to CTAs would set the commission rates. In my own account, I was trading at a $12 commission rate, which by today's standards is insanely expensive, but back then was a good rate. My customers were trading at a $50 commission rate or even higher. So I had to trade my CTA accounts different from my own account because if I traded them at the same level, it would be churning. I might be up in my own account while at the same time the CTA accounts could be down. That disparity really bothered me and ultimately drove me to the decision that I had to manage money in a fund. So your performance as a CTA prior to the starting the fund was dragged down by high commissions. If you had been paying the lower commissions charged in the fund you subsequently started, would your performance in your early years as a CTA have been more in line with the fund performance levels? No, because the performance difference was not only due to the disparity in commission rates. In order to avoid an excessive commission burden on the client-managed accounts, I took only about one-quarter of the trades that I did in my own account. Ultimately, I decided to switch to a fund structure not only to control costs, but also to assure that my investors' accounts were traded the exact same way as my own account. In 2000, I started the fund. Did your methodology evolve over time?
It did. In my early years in the business, I was able to trade the markets technically and make money, while keeping my drawdowns very manageable. But I wasn't making the big money. I thought about what was holding me back. The light bulb that clicked on for me was the realization that I had to also embrace fundamentals. That insight brought me back to my original interest in economics. When did this transition occur? In the 1990s, after I became a CTA. I remember one of my biggest trades. At the time, there was a general consensus that government borrowing was going to crowd out private borrowing, which it was expected would be very bearish for the bond market. I was reading all these bearish articles on the bond market, but I was looking at the market and it wasn't going down. I thought, wait a minute. If everyone thinks this way and it seems so logical, then if the market goes the other way, everyone is going to be wrong and they will have to cover their shorts. That's your trade. From that point on, it became a matter of not only looking at prices on a chart, but also thinking about why prices were the way they were, how people were positioned, and the psychology of the market. You have to try to understand what people are thinking. I began to look at the market from the perspective of other traders. What would I be feeling if I were short bonds, thinking I had this great trade, and seeing the market go against me? That line of thinking led me to take the opposite position, long bonds, which turned out to be a huge winning trade. Ironically, the way you incorporated fundamentals in that example was in a totally contrarian manner. You weren't using fundamentals to forecast a market direction. Instead, you were looking at the fundamentals that everyone else perceived and observing that the market was going the other way. Is that the standard way you use fundamentals? The reality is that I'm not being paid to be right. I'm being paid to make money. You have to have a degree of flexibility. Whenever I talk to investors, I make it clear to them that whatever I say today about the markets may or may not reflect the positions I have tomorrow or the next day. I recently reviewed a presentation I gave about six months ago, and I realized that everything I had predicted didn't happen. And yet, I made money in almost every month since then. Can you give me some specific examples of how incorporating fundamentals improved your trading? The major trade was long bonds, which coincided with the start of the fund in 2000. At the time, we had seen a long period of stock speculation. I thought that economic conditions couldn't get any better. Anyone who had a pulse had a job, equity markets were at their highs, and yet we were not generating any inflation. If we were not generating inflation under those conditions, then what would happen if we started to slow at the margins? I was so focused on the long fixed income trade that for the first three or four years of the fund, probably two-thirds of the trades were in fixed income. Was it the topping of the equity market in early 2000 that got you long in fixed income? The break in equities were definitely the catalyst for the fixed income trade, but the trade was going to happen anyway. I used the fundamentals to have a directional bias, and I used the technicals to confirm that bias. Once I had the catalyst, I could say that yields should never again see their previous high. I could then decide what I was willing to risk and let the market work. I was long for years, but I traded around the position. Nothing goes in a straight line. I added on weakness and lightened up on strength. What is a recent example of fundamentals influencing a trade? Just last week, we had the European Central Bank bailing out Ireland, and boom, the next day, the DAX, German Stock Index, is at a new high, the TSE, Canadian Stock Index, is at a new high, and the S&P and NASDAQ are at new highs. And what does that tell you? 
it tells me that it is risk-on for now. Otherwise, all these markets wouldn't be making new highs a few days after a crisis. They might rebound, but they wouldn't go to new highs. Think of taking a volleyball and pushing it underwater. That is your crisis event. Then you let go, the event dissipates, and the ball goes popping out of the water. That is exactly what we just experienced in the markets. Today, we had a terrible unemployment report, and yet the equity markets closed higher. The equity market's repeated resilience in the face of negative news items tells me that it wants to go higher. Chaos creates opportunity. We learn so much about the markets when we have crisis events. We learn from how the markets respond? Yes, there are simple things you can do. You can calculate in percentage terms how much each market responds to a crisis event. You can then rank the markets from strongest to weakest. Is that what you do? Absolutely. Just a simple exercise of measuring which markets were the strongest during a crisis can tell you which markets are likely to be the leaders when the pressure is off, the markets that will be the ball popping out of the water. For example, crude made a low early in the month, and on the crisis in Ireland, it didn't even retest that low. Then, as soon as the pressure was off, crude was $5 higher. Conversely, the markets that were weakest should be the markets that rally the least and the first ones to roll over on a general continued decline. Is that how you pick your longs and shorts? I always want to buy the strongest and sell the weakest. Always. If you believe that all the markets in the sector are going higher, will you only be long the market you expect to be the strongest in that sector? Yes, I want to be long only the market that is acting the best. The market that gets dragged up by a related market may even be a good short. Sometimes I will place a sell stop in a market that gets dragged up so that if it rolls over and starts going down, it will trigger a short position. Frequently, that market will continue to go down and go back to where it should be, while the leading market hardly corrects. How long have the markets been in this highly correlated state? We have been in an extremely correlated state since the 2008 financial crisis. I believe that the dog is stocks and the tail is everything else. In general or just recently? Stocks rule, especially in the last few years. You better know which direction equities are going and watch how that influences other markets. Let's say in one week equities go up and commodities go up. That makes sense and is what you would expect. But then assume in the following week equities continue to rise but commodities stall. Then, all else being equal, you better be very suspect of your long commodity positions. As an engineering student, you would seem unnatural for developing a systemized approach. Yet, you developed into a strictly discretionary trader. Why do you think that is? It just fit my personality. I enjoyed the observation part of it. I am the guy who sits in front of the screen every trading day of the year and watches all the markets change. That is just what works for me. You're seeing things, and the wheels of your subconscious are spinning. Whether you recognize it right away or not, your mind is working out these patterns for you. Trading gets so ingrained in your psyche that it becomes second nature, like driving a car. Sometimes you look at a chart and just know what to do without thinking about it. How much do you risk on a single trade? Typically, about 10 basis points of assets under management, but I may get out even more quickly. Some people can put on a trade, risk some specified percentage loss, and they give it months to work out. I can't do that. If I put on a trade today and it's not working by the end of the day, I'm out. I don't want to take any more risk. I might get back into it tomorrow at a worse price, but that is a premium I'm willing to pay to see the market acting the way I think it should be.
Do you literally mean to imply that if you are behind on a trade the first day, you get out? Yes, 90% of the time. That's my personality. I am a chicken when it comes to taking risks. If you get out if you are behind on the first day, presumably you would also get out if you are behind on the trade on any subsequent day. Using such a tight exit condition, it sounds like you would be stopped out of a large percentage of your trades. I might lose ten times on an idea until the eleventh time when it works. If I then get the move I thought I was going to get, it will then more than make up for all the little losses. To me, the most important thing is to control the downside. Rigorous risk control is not only important in keeping losses small, but it also impacts profit potential. You have to put yourself in the position to be able to take advantage of opportunities. The only way you can do that is to have a clear mind. If you have trades that are not working and your mental energy is going towards damage control, you can't think clearly about opportunities in the market. What was your worst month? I lost 10% in October 2003. How is that possible given that you are only risking 10 basis points on each trade? For me to be down 10% from a standing start would be a death by 1,000 cuts. But the drawdown on a trade can be much larger than the original risk if there is a large open profit. The 10% loss month followed a 10% gain in the previous month. I was long fixed income big time, and the unemployment report was extremely positive. It led to a giant reversal but I had made 200% over the course of the prior few years trading this one theme. That reversal turned out to be the end of the theme. If I looked back, would I be willing to do the same thing again? Sure I would. I would be happy to have a huge run and give back 10%. I had a lot of risk on because I was being paid to take risk. I can get hit when I have been getting paid, but it is hard for me to get hit from a standing start. That is the key. If you don't have any positions with large open profits, what would be a really bad month for you? A 2% or a 3% loss. Besides looking at charts and chart patterns, do you use any technical indicators? I use the Relative Strength Index, RSI, but not as an overbought, oversold indicator. Instead, I look for divergences between the RSI and price. I look at the 200-day moving average and Fibonacci retracements. If the market sells off to the 200-day moving average and I'm short, I may be inclined to take the money off the table and watch how the market reacts. I particularly like to get combined signals, such as the price approaching the 200-day moving average and a 50% retracement. I'll pay a lot of attention to that type of indicator combination. What personal characteristics do you think were instrumental in your being successful as a trader? Discipline. Have you had any lapses in discipline? In the early days, sure, but I haven't taken a real hit for a very long time. I am very disciplined with my stops. If there is one principle that you cannot violate, it is know what you can lose. Are there mistakes you have made that were learning experiences in terms of avoiding similar losses in the future? I got involved in trading over-the-counter fixed income. Call it style drift, call it whatever. When 2008 hit, the dealers wouldn't make a market on those things. I would have been up 26% for the year instead of 19% if it weren't for these trades. I will never again trade a market where liquidity is at the whim of a dealer. Why with so many interest rate futures markets would you have a need to go to the over-the-counter market? Good question, thank you. I thought the trade made sense. But couldn't you express the same trade in futures? 
It was a convergence trade involving Mooney bonds, so I couldn't actually replicate it in futures. What I found was that there are such great benefits to trading in exchange-traded markets, or the interbank market, that giving up those benefits is just not worth it. Lower liquidity doesn't work with my style. I need to be able to stop myself out in 10 basis points if I want to. Did you ever think you were wrong on a trade but still had trouble liquidating it? My fail-safe is that I always have a stop in the market. Sometimes, though, my intuition tells me that I should get out right away, but I don't do anything hoping my stop won't be hit. Then sure enough, I end up getting stopped out. My misplaced hope and my desire to still be right sometimes cause my losses to be greater than they need to be. Hope is the worst four-letter word for a trader. Do you think intuition is important to trading? It is very important. I think intuition is a subconscious skill you develop over time. How do you handle a losing streak? I believe that you should always be swinging the bat. The question is, when do you choke up on the bat? When I am in a drawdown, I will choke up on the bat. I reduce my position size. When I am more attuned to the market and playing with market money, I will 